0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, So this is going to be a second lesson um, on the subject of contrasting confessions. Um, A few weeks ago, uh, we did a lesson looking at a contrast between uh, Saul's confession in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul, when he failed to annihilate the Amalekites at God's direction, Um, At first, he refused to take responsibility for his disobedience. And when he finally did confess his sin, um, we can see in context and from the overall life of Saul that what he confessed was ultimately very very shallow um, and not genuine. And what we did was we contrasted that and we saw how in Psalm 51, when David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba and striving to make amends for that, we see lessons in contrast to Saul that really show us what true confession really ought to look like in the heart, what the goals of true confession should be. But confession is, um, it's a very big subject, actually. It's a very vital aspect in a relationship with God. And just like when we think about faith, faith is itself. There are very straightforward, very simple aspects of faith but there's a depth and there is a need um, to really understand the the subtleties or um, the bigger picture of what faith looks like and how we continue to grow in faith. And confession is like that. It It is a very vital part of our relationship with God, not just at the onset of the beginning of our faith and salvation when we initially confessed Christ as Lord or maybe initially we confessed sins we were struggling with when we were separated from Christ, but rather, um, in First John, we looked at this a few weeks ago, in First John chapter 1, what's conveyed is that we are to continuously be striving to seek out ways that we can be finding sin in our life, examining our weaknesses, and diligently and openly confessing those things um, to broaden our understanding of God's greatness and mercy. So I'd like to look at two examples that um, are very interesting, and I think help us to get um, a greater depth of angle and layers when we think about the subject of confession. If you notice in the scripture reading in Jeremiah chapter 14, um, Judah and maybe Judah as led by Jeremiah is confessing their sin to God. And I just want to point out a couple of things about that confession before giving a couple introductory remarks about what's really going on here. So you notice in verse 1, this is a drought, a famine that's happening. The people are lamenting the drought and how bad it is in verses 1 through 6. And verse 7, they say, Although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your namesake. Truly, our apostasies or backslidings have been many. We have sinned against you. Um, I think... This confession has a bit more genuineness than maybe Saul's had in 1 Samuel 15. And in some senses, it actually makes it maybe more difficult to examine, especially when we see God's response in verse 10 through 12. Um, and I'll go ahead and spoil it. In verse 10 through 12, God very brazenly actually rejects their confession and says to Jeremiah, I don't want you praying for these people. I don't want you supplicating for them. I'm not going to listen to them. Don't even pray for their welfare because I am going to bring them to an end and annihilate them. So what's going on? How can God reply that way? We're going to come back there. Um, but I did a lesson overviewing the Bible um, a few weeks ago, I think before the contrast of confession lesson. And where where are we? Um, we're at the near the end of the Old Testament time period where Israel has sunken and plummeted to a place of apostasy so deep that there really is no longer any remedy anymore in their relationship with God. Since the time of their uh, from the time of their beginning with Moses back in about 1447 B.C., now for what is nearly a thousand years, God has been continuously delivering the people. Um, over and over and over again, allowing himself to be taken advantage of. But here we're at a point where their, their treachery has run so deep. The, the, the matter of the emergency of just how far gone they are takes extreme measures. And because of the extreme measures that God has to implement, what that does is it unearths deeper and more subtle lessons About how we can overcome sin. I want to make, I think, what I hope is a very helpful point about what distinguishes maybe the lessons from these sections compared to Saul and David before. I don't know if you're like me, Um, I'm sure most of you are. In my life, many, many times, I've been stuck in cycles of sin and pride where in my past what's happened was I will continuously repeat the same sin over and over and over again. You know, I'll commit a sin. Um, Oftentimes in my past, it was something like pornography, sexual sin. And I'll feel very convicted about it. I'll I'll have this remorse, but, you know, it kind of fades away. And you just kind of end up repeating the same sin over and over again. Um, And I'll, I'll emphasize this a little later in the lesson, but sometimes it's maybe struggles of attitude and pride where you maybe have moments of humility, but you keep reverting back into the same mentality. That's where Israel is, right? They've been stuck for hundreds of years, nationally and individually, in these cycles where ultimately they keep reverting back over and over again into the same condition to the point now At the end of the timeline where Jerusalem is about to be annihilated by Babylon, God can no longer support or tolerate these cycles of constantly going back into the same habits of sin again and again. And for God to deliver them at this point would be an irresponsible support for their apostasy. And I want to go back to chapter 3 here. I think there's some interesting things that are going to help us see their situation from God's perspective. And really in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is actually the longest book of the Bible, even though it doesn't have as many chapters as a book like the Psalms. Um, Just in terms of word count, it's, it's a much longer book than any other book. Where the veil is being pulled away and in Jeremiah, we are getting to see God's perspective of a catastrophic situation in his relationship with his people. So again, the point I have on the board there is we really need to see this very clearly. Judah had sunk deeper into apostasy and treachery than ever before. And they were at their end. This this was it. So look now at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. So what he's saying here is if uh, a woman goes from a man, they divorce, she belongs to another man, while she's still with that man, still in that relationship, what he's saying in verse 1 is, will that man then go to her while, he is, while she's still in that other relationship? And he says in verse 1, well, you're a harlot with many lovers. So the situation here is Jeremiah begins prophesying in the days of Josiah. And if you know anything about Josiah, he's actually one of the greatest kings who ever reigned in Israel. And it's actually, Jeremiah is a very surprising book because you read Josiah's kingship in the narrative accounts in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and you're like, wow, this actually looks like one of the greatest times of Israel history, actually. Idolatry is being destroyed very forcibly by Josiah. He's telling people to rekindle their passion for the law and the temple. And what God reveals in Jeremiah is although Josiah was a righteous man, the people had ultimately not changed and not repented despite what Josiah had done, and now that they have the temple system working, they're going to feel even more justified now without repenting because now they have these good works with the temple and the law, the priesthood. So let's, let's keep reading verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been violated? By the roads you have sat for them like an Arab in the desert and you have polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore, notice this, therefore the showers have been withheld and there has been no rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. Have you not not just now called to me, my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken and have done evil things and you have had your way. Then the Lord said to me in the days of, notice this, Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. And she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Now notice verse 10. I've, I've highlighted this in my Bible. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. So do you see the problem in verse 10, going back to verse 1? God is saying, okay, so Josiah's made these reforms, and yeah, they've turned, but their turning back to me has been in deception. They haven't actually repented of what they've done. There's been no legitimate remorse, no meaningful change. Maybe Josiah has forcibly reinstituted proper practice, but the people are still ultimately the same. They are still entrenched in the same condition of heart, even if that's not being manifested externally now in the same ways as in the reign of someone like Manasseh, when the idolatry was more visibly apparent. Now look at verse 11. So again, I just want to make the point, the condition is actually worse now that Josiah has made these reforms and the people Now it's like they're thinking there's innocence. And actually, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 35, hopefully this is in the same opening in your Bible. Um, Back in chapter 2, verse 35, yet you said, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Behold, I will enter into judgment with you because you say, I have not sinned. So there's the problem is God is saying, no, it's as bad as it's ever been. And yet you're saying, well, I'm innocent now. God's anger is turned away and Jeremiah is there to say, no, it's worse now. Chapter 3, verse 11. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Yet the idea is, if God was willing to destroy Israel, which by now, Assyria, they've destroyed Israel. Israel's gone. And so God is telling Jeremiah, just kind of like proclaim to the north, you know, Israel, return, repent, acknowledge your iniquity. The idea is, if God was willing to restore Israel, if they would genuinely confess, surely he would restore Judah, right? So really look at verse 13. Only acknowledge your iniquity, right? Now turn back to chapter 14. And I think this ends up heightening the mystery of God's response. And just like with Saul, in First Samuel 15, there are things that lead us to go back and really think more carefully about what Judah is actually saying in their confession and gaining lessons of kind of seeing where the problem lies in really what they're saying. So remember verse 7, chapter 14. I mean, hey, they acknowledge their iniquity. They seem to be very openly accepting responsibility. But now let's, let's actually read verses 10 through 12. Thus says the Lord to this people. Even so, they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now, he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I'm not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. That is terrifying. But I want to ask the question, why does God reject their confession here? I mean, in chapter three, he said, you know, acknowledge your iniquity and he'll receive them. But just as as a reference, go back to chapter 7. As much as God has been referencing acknowledging iniquity, I want you to look at chapter 7. So again, time of Josiah, right? So in chapter 7, Jeremiah was actually told go to the temple where people are actually going to worship. And I want you to see what he says in verse 5. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds... If you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. So if you look at verse 8, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? So again, the problem is God was seeking for them not just to say magic words, right, but to truly not only accept responsibility for their sin, but to make a radical change and accept responsibility in a way that would turn them to God, to obey him. Back to chapter 14. When you look at their confession, I think what you see is they're really still not seeing things from God's perspective or really allowing themselves to comprehend just how deep and how far the problem of their sin really goes. And the idea is this, even for us, the problem of sin runs deeper than any apparent external habit, or even any consequence we may perceive is directly related to our sin or our sinful decisions. This drought in chapter 14, verse 1, we saw in chapter 3 that their lack of rain was God directly doing something because of their sin, so this was an extended consequence of their relationship with God and how broken that relationship was. And it's good that they acknowledge that, right? But again, from God's perspective, what we read in chapter 3, was really the extent of the problem only as far as their lack of rain? Was that really as far as this problem went? No, this was a deep and severe problem that was going to require much more searching of heart than what we see here. And it's the same for us as well. We need to realize that the problem of sin runs deep. Do you remember in uh, John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Jews, trying to get them to see that um, they are in sin and really need to accept that in order to see and understand him and hear his teaching. And Jesus says, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In Romans chapter 7, when Paul is reflecting on the tension of his life apart from Christ, he says, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So ultimately, the internal power of sin and the pull is something that has to be seen and understood in order for there to be true healing. But I think when you especially look at verse 8 and 9, I think we really see more of the problem here. What were they really seeking to be accomplished in their confession? So you notice again, O hope of Israel, O Savior, its Savior in time of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? Why are you like a man dismayed, like a mighty man who cannot save? So that kind of borders on just brazen accusation right so in in verse 8 why are you like a stranger in the land they're saying is god it's like you don't even care you know it's like you're just visiting among us and you don't really care about what's happening you don't really have a concern about how much trouble we're having here and verse 9 it's like to say god why can't you save us You know, why can't you change the situation? Don't be like a man who proves himself to be overcome by the problem so that he can't even act or too weak to solve it, right? So ultimately what they're seeking is just the restoration of their convenience. They're looking for the famine to be resolved so they can get back to their comfort and really be able to pursue their personal desires again. But if you remember chapter 3 and what we saw in chapter 7, there's nothing here about wanting to learn and listen, learning how to make amends. There's no laying themselves at God's feet and saying, teach us, teach us how to obey you, teach us what we need to do, just instruct us and guide us and help us get to the root of this problem. You don't see that here. Their desire is as shallow as their desire for comfort and convenience. This is something that I think is very relatable. Um, <laughs> When I was 16, uh, I got into the worst accident of my life, and I've I've been in a lot of accidents. I've probably been in like seven or eight accidents in my life. Um, But my dad and I were driving through the woods at night, and um, I very foolishly went very fast over an incline. The road on the other side was very eroded. My tire got caught in the erosion. The ATV flipped, and I flipped with it, and I landed on the ground, and for about maybe 10 minutes, I was absolutely certain that I was definitely going to die. Um, I couldn't breathe. I was coughing up blood. I could feel that my body was internally damaged. So I just wasn't sure how damaged I was and was just like, you know, this is it. I'm going to die. I was also aware at that time that I was actually deeply, um, I had drifted very far from God, even though I was 16, I I was young. Um, but I was very aware that I was apostate. You know, I was not at all in a faithful relationship with God. So that's the most frightened I've ever been in my life. And I remember in a panic, you know, I was constantly under my breath saying, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, please, 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 please forgive me. You know, and things like, God, God, if you, if you, you know, if you save me and if, if I'm able to live, you know, I'll serve you. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. And so just in this in this panic, you know, that I knew that, Very vividly, I was about to hold, about to have to give an account for my life, and I knew that my life was not in a godly place. Um, Some time passes, I heal, I recover, and what happens? Um, I get worse than before. Um, When I'm 16 and I get out of the hospital, I don't serve God, I don't have a rekindled zeal um, for following His ways, and ultimately my heart. past that opportunity uh, to resolve the issues of my faith at that time. Because ultimately what was proven was what I really wanted was the restoration of convenience and comfort. And as soon as I had that, I was the same and actually worse than I was before. And I think that happens on more intimate levels with habitual sin. Maybe we're very convicted when we feel the guilt, but oh, God forgive me, your, your guilt goes away, you kind of get back into the flow of life and you're just kind of the same as you were before. No no actual, really meaningful change, no change of will, no change of habits, just the same as before, and you get locked into the same sin. And I think despite their confession, they're giving themselves far too much credit and giving God far, far too little credit. We'll see this in Lamentations, but really they're basing their view of God on whether or not he's going to solve their problem, right? Right? and there's a great deal of hidden and what may seem to be subtle pride associated with that again kind of like we talked about with Saul are they in a position to make demands of god because they confess their sin real quick are they in a position to say god we've said what we need to say so now is the time to solve our problem and bring back the rain no they don't they don't have that privilege and to presume they're in a position to make demands of God, shows that their heart still isn't in the right place with him, right? And so we'll see in a contrast in Lamentations 3, where Jeremiah has a completely different attitude. But again, they're not seeking to be radically redirected. And that ultimately is what makes confession meaningful, is it's, there? There's, there's many layers to confession that lead us to the right kind of repentance, This is really what you see with John the Baptist when the Pharisees and Jewish leaders were coming to him. You know, because again, they came and maybe they were coming because they wanted to be baptized. But do you remember what John says to them? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, do what? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This isn't about just saying the right thing or doing the right thing and getting to be seen by others doing those things. This is about really genuinely, really genuinely letting God hold a radical, redirected will and dominion over our lives and learning how to allow ourselves to be ruled by God. Let's look at Lamentations 3. And again, we'll see a very stark contrast in Jeremiah's words in Lamentations 3. Um, Lamentations is right after Jeremiah. It's not really a book that I think many of us read or maybe are familiar with. Um, But Lamentations 3, if there's like, when thinking about confession and humility, if there's a place in the Bible to really be anchored in um, alongside passages like Psalm 51, very famously where David confesses his his sin, Lamentations 3, um, I just cannot speak highly enough about what's, what's hidden here in terms of confession, making amends for sin, and really pouring your heart out before God. I want to start with verses 1 1 through 18. Um, Jeremiah says some things here that you may find uncomfortable and probably quite shocking. But this is after, so God said, you know what, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to persist and I'm going to make an end of these people. Well, before Lamentations was written, God God did that. Uh, Jerusalem at this point, it's eradicated. Jeremiah has seen horrible atrocities he's seen Jewish people who starve to death by famine he's seen women eat their own infants and toddlers in the famine and just in the madness of their depravity and Jeremiah himself has been in the midst of all of those things suffering right alongside the people if you look at verse one he says I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath he has driven me and made me walk in darkness not in light surely against me has turned his hand repeatedly all day long now I want you kind of imagine I know, I know this is kind of like a strange image but you imagine somebody getting punched in the face over and over and over again relentlessly that's, that's actually what jeremiah is really saying there it says in verse 4 he has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away he has broken my bones he has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship If you look at verse 7 he has walled me in so that i cannot go out he has made my chain heavy even when i cry even when i cry out and call for help he shuts out my prayer verse 10 he is to me like a bear lying in wait like a lion in secret places now he's talking about god by the way right so he's saying that this is these are all these different things that god has done to jeremiah and you would think like, well, this is the prophet, right? Who's been doing God's will, who's been faithful to God. And here he is seeing God in quite a terrifying way. And if you look in verse 12, he has bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He has made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. You see, imagine the image of Jeremiah bruised, torn apart, bones broken, battered, and just sitting there shivering alone in darkness and in the dust. And he says in verse 17, my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. So it sounds like Jeremiah has pretty much lost any motivation to serve God, you'd think, right? That that's it. I mean, why would you want to serve a God who treats you that way, right? But you'll notice I I have on the board here, Jeremiah is just very accurately, very poetically, but very accurately, he's expressing what sin has done, to bring Israel to its lowest point in history. But Jeremiah's next words, what he expresses is actually the absolute pinnacle of victorious faith. Because even though Israel nationally really had failed, and this is Israel's lowest point, what Lamentations 3 shows us is that God had not failed. And that Lamentations 3 is actually the peak of the mountain of godliness in the Old Testament time period. And so I want you to see 19 through 25, and we'll begin making some points here. And and by the way, in terms of confession, this is leading to verses 39 through 42, where Jeremiah makes a more clear confession in contrast to what we saw in Jeremiah 14. But 19 through 25. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, and pause there. Before we read these next words, I want you to keep in mind, nothing circumstantially has changed from what we're about to read to the first 18 verses that we read, right? Jeremiah's circumstances haven't gotten better. Nothing's been restored. Everything's the same as it was before. But I want you to look at verse 21. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is, the por- is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Before I say anything else, what can you do to someone like this to turn them away from God? Like, what can you possibly do? For Jeremiah to say, God, it's like you're a bear who has mauled me and a lion who's torn me apart and it's like you've set me up as the target for your arrows. Great is your faithfulness. Your compassions never fail. What what can you do to someone like that to turn them away from God? Nothing. It is the pinnacle of victorious faith in the Old Testament. True confession is focused on seeking and justifying God's righteousness and his faithfulness. You see, Jeremiah isn't basing his view of God on whether or not things become convenient for him again or, okay, God, you've really messed us up and it's about time now. Things really need to get comfortable again or, God, you you really need to fix this problem right now. No, he says, God, we're devastated and I'm broken. And what that does is it eliminates one perspective and it brings another into view. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, says, For those who are according to, their fl- according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So let me ask you this, just based on 19 through 25. Was Jeremiah's mind any longer focused on the things of the flesh? Or was he focused on the things of the spirit, the spiritual things that truly make God who he is? Jeremiah wasn't focused on God's compassion because of physical circumstances. It was because of who God is outside of circumstance. Jeremiah was looking at the broader, bigger picture as it's seen and defined by God himself, not by circumstance. Verse 22 is one of the most powerful verses in the Old Testament. Can you believe that when things had gotten so bad, so catastrophic... That Jeremiah would say, the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And can you believe that that song we sang, great is thy faithfulness, that that's said by Jeremiah as a part of a poem exalting God in this circumstance. That was expressed in the darkest, most disgusting and depraved time in Israel's history. Here's the point. Verses 1 through 18 is actually beautiful because all Jeremiah is saying is here is the position. Sin puts us in with God. This is it. This is the reality. What sin does is it robs us of every right, every right to comfort, every right to leisure, every right to any privilege. What sin does is it puts us in a position where we have every right to be annihilated for what we've done But Jeremiah sees that and has experienced that very honestly, while at the same time viewing the glory of God's character, and because of that, he can truly heal from his sin. Let's look at verse 26 through 38. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. And by the way, just maybe to make it more shocking, what Jeremiah is saying is it's good to suffer. And it's good even to suffer when you're young. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. What he's saying is if sin means you get to be humiliated, let it be. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief... He will, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill come forth? here's the point especially when you look at the initial verses we read verse 26 through 30 you know jeremiah makes reflections that you think how could you say that how could you say something like give your cheek to the smiter how could you say it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth to lay your mouth in the dust what about your rights what about being mistreated and injustice No, true confession sees the importance of being brought down and staying down. And there, there is the power of God. There is the cross. You know, this should come as no surprise on the other side of the cross. Do you remember Jesus? He changed the world when he said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And in Luke 9, he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The apostles in 1 Corinthians 4, when the Corinthians, they were exalting themselves, and because they were seeking privilege and comfort and convenience in life, they were drifting in their attitude from the attitude of truth and the mind of Christ. And so Paul, to remind them of the truth, what does he say? It says, for I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things until now. How do they do that? Why? Why would they do that? Because Paul had just finished telling the Corinthians that the wisdom of the world is not in leisure and achievement But the glory of God's wisdom is hidden in the cross. While God uses the weak and shameful things of the world to nullify the things that seem strong and seem wise. There is a humility, a humility unique to genuine faith, a humility unique to Christ. And confession becomes void if not coupled with that humility. Not that we're brought down only by circumstance with convictions that waver and are gone as soon as things get better, but rather Jesus leads us in the way to be brought low and stay there. 39 through 44. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord we lift up our heart and hands toward God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and have not spared. You have covered yourself with the clouds that no prayer can pass through. You know, again, I know verse 43 and 44 can sound nearly disheartening. You know, how could God do that? How could God shut out prayer and, you know, cover himself with anger and pursue without any relenting? because that's where the greatest lessons are. And when prayer can't pass through, it's not a time for quick remedy. It's a time for verse 40. It's a time to examine. It's a time to search the heart. It's a time to really probe our ways. These verses here are the key to escaping any habitual sin or attitude. True confession seeks to uproot, not just mow over the grass and, you know, the weeds, you may not see them anymore, but underneath they're going to grow faster than the grass as soon as the rain hits, as soon as time passes. True confession seeks to uproot every attitude of pride, every attitude of privilege in view of sin. Verse 39 is one I've circled in my Bible. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins. Listen, Jesus didn't come to die on the cross to show us that we have the privilege of leisure, that we have the privilege to living comfortable lives, that we have the privilege to having the right job that we want, the right health that we want. We don't have the privilege of getting to fulfill our desires whenever we feel like it, or having the food that we want or the amount that we want. Jesus came into the world so that not only can we see that in our sin we forfeited all of our rights, all of those privileges, but Jesus came to help us to willfully set those things aside, to live a life like the apostles, a life of lowliness, setting those things aside and realizing that God's grace is truly immeasurable last question i want to ask god was not going to relent punishing the nation so you think in jeremiah 14 how easy would it be god says i'm not going to give you rain in fact i am going to kill you all is it worth serving god anymore is it you have to think like well i mean if god's not going to heal our land well i'm just going to keep serving the idols then what's the point what's the point What if, in turning to God, there was the guarantee, the guarantee, that if you want to make your sin right, if you want to get your life in proper order with God, you will suffer more than you ever have before. You'll lose more than you ever have before. Is it still worth getting your life right with God? Is it? Do you remember when Paul was called as an apostle? You know, he had lived a very privileged life as a Jew and Pharisee. God said, I will show him how many things he will suffer for my namesake. Is it worth serving God, even if we're in circumstances like Jeremiah, where everything becomes catastrophic even in the process of getting right with God? Resoundingly, the answer is yes. God is so great. The view of eternal life, the view of his character so far eclipses anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God, so far eclipses when we truly have a circumcised heart, nothing matters anymore except being with God. It is better, it is better to suffer with God than to gain comfort without him. The lesson is yours. If you're here this morning and... In your life, you see that you are separated from God. Um, The urgency is always present. We never know when Christ will come again. We don't know what the next moment holds. We need to get our lives right with God. And in eternity, nothing, nothing matters more than putting on Christ, being saved. We have water behind me, and you can repent and put on Christ in baptism and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit this morning with no delay. And if you're here and there's anything else that needs to be made right in your life with God, please make it known while we stand and sing.